1986, a five-year-old boy named Corey Frank stared out the window of a U.S. air jet and was captivated by the view he saw. 27 years later, Corey became the youngest captain then flying for United Airlines, a moment he thought was the finish line for the success he had chased. But over the following year, Corey came to realize that that moment wasn't a finish line at all. Rather, it was only the beginning of an even greater journey, one that would take an entire lifetime to achieve. And I think we've all been in those moments where we reach a big goal and realize that it's not the end. It is only the beginning, and it's part of the journey. And Corey captured the story of his leadership journey as a new captain, and now that journey and how that journey changed the way he viewed success and perhaps how you might as well. And it's told through his memoir, Three Feet to the Left, A New Captain's Journey from Pursuit to Perspective. And now Corey is, of course, an airline pilot, a captain, a speaker, and an author, uh, emerging all his years uh, in the airline's uh, with everything else he's done and uh, shares that experience in his book, Three Feet to the Left. And he's sharing that experience on our podcast today. And it was cool that he reached out and we were able to get him on uh, because I asked him some questions in this interview about his leadership journey and um, some important leadership qualities to be a successful captain. And we also get into some questions about general flying and how he uh, looks at the passengers that come on the plane, do the pilots in the front of the plane get bored while they're flying or do they have things to do the entire time while up the, they're up there? Is this a fulfilling job? What are the most and least fulfilling parts of the job? And how long is it going to be before jets are completely automated? All that and more in this interview with Corey Frank, Captain Corey Frank from United Airlines. Enjoy. You know you are capable of more. Because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears. To follow your dreams. And to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stort Show. Let's go. Corey, welcome to The Andy Stort Show. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so great to have you on. Uh, I have had a chance to look through your book here, Three Feet to the Left, and uh, I am excited for the opportunity to talk to you and interview. Of course, we've talked a little bit, even met up recently. And, That's right. Uh, I have been a uh, regular traveling consultant for about uh, almost nine years now, flying a lot uh, of flights all over the world on United Airlines and never really got a chance to talk to a pilot before. They're always too busy flying the plane. So no, it gets, it gets in the way. It does. It's really... That was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, actually. We'll get later to like a lot of the, you know, uh, flyers, passengers want to know type questions. But like, do you feel there is that barrier, right? And especially since 9-11, there's that like bulletproof barrier that has to be closed and locked at all times. Do you feel a little disconnected from the passengers? Like you wish you could be more, uh, I don't know, like amongst the people and talking more with passengers while you're flying. Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people used to, um, g they'd walk up and down the, the aisle and things like that, but we're clearly not supposed to do a lot of that unless there's a, a good reason, especially in flight now. And, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, I will say that that door is one of the big reasons that I ultimately was compelled to write three feet to the left that, uh, aside from the fact that my first year as a major airline captain was a really um, eventful year for me, both inside and outside the flight deck, and it was a story that I, I felt compelled to share, 
I also know that anytime that I go anywhere, and I'm sure that most of my pilot colleagues would agree, we get, you know, the litany of questions about what it's like to be an airline kit pilot. And I thought, well, what if I could combine this, this leadership story that I wanted to tell with a vivid peak in front of that flight deck door so that you felt uh, so that you felt like you were sitting on what we call the flight deck jump seats, the extra seats in the cockpit. And it could be like that uh, you'd be able to experience firsthand what it's like for thunderstorms and blizzards and um, dealing with passenger issues and day-to-day life on the road, things like that, uh, to, to write technically enough that it feels real, but not so technical that it flies over people's heads. Right. Thought intended or not intended there? Oh, right, exactly, was exactly. It wasn't, un- it wasn't really intended. <laughs> I think you mentioned a leadership story, and I think a lot of people just kind of want to know what's going on up in the cockpit, and, and I totally, I'm glad you wrote the book because there's a lot of insight in there, and you know, how do you handle all these different situations, and I have plenty of questions about that. But also, what I started really thinking about as I was reading your book is that you are, as a captain, you know, first of all, the, the, if you're a pilot in general, you have a lot of responsibility, right? You have people, 200 people on a, on a 737 and you want to get them to their destination safely. Although I have to interrupt and say that I joke and really it's all about me. I just have to get me there safely and there's a very good chance that you're going to get there safely too. <laughs> is that like the, you know, if you're with a friend and a bear comes, all you have to do is... You, you got to beat your friend. That's right. That's yeah, it. That right. <laughs> um, I just did an episode recently about how I encountered, when I encountered a grizzly bear last, last year, you saw that I didn't have a friend outrun it was just me and the bear Um, the stakes are higher then you want to get yourself there safely and ideally everyone else as well Uh, but as the captain you are the ultimate person in charge right of the entire crew you you the buck stops with you even if the the control tower says hey you should go this way or that way you ultimately make the decision so you are the leader or the ultimate manager of how that flight takes place and where it goes and Correct. You assumed that responsibility at 31 years old, one of the youngest, I know the youngest at the time, maybe one of the youngest in, in history for United or Major Airlines. What was that like? Well, I don't know about history, but definitely at the time uh, I was the youngest, which in many ways is purely a function of luck and timing when it comes to where I was on the seniority list, because all the promotions and demotions in the airlines are purely a function of seniority, uh, at least at most carriers. Um, it was really a big jump, and they really reiterated to us in in the training about the that you know the passengers who get on board they they don't care if you're nearing your 65th birthday, which is the mandatory retirement age for airline pilots, or in my case, if you're 31 years old, no matter no matter what that is, you um, uh, they expect you to to manage your teams well, to fly safely, to get people where they're going, um, and that can be a tall order. In my case, there were some uh, complications also because of the fact that United and Continental Airlines were going through their merger, and uh, there were the cultural integration that was going on at the time as well. Uh, And so being on the 737 fleet, we were kind of on the front lines of that integration because I I was what they call a legacy Continental pilots, meaning I started with Continental Airlines, and uh, we had a lot of uh, at the time, United had some pilots that were out on furlough. And so when the merger took place, they recalled the, those pilots. And because Continental happened to be growing at the time, they recalled them onto the Continental side. So a lot of the element of the book 
has to do with managing that cultural, uh, those cultural tensions, the seniority list integration tensions, all of those factors in addition to the day-to-day responsibilities of getting from A to B safely uh, and on time, at least as much as possible. So it definitely was a challenge. Yeah, and getting there, like I said, at at a pretty young age, 31, when a lot of your colleagues, I'm gonna guess, were older than you, uh, what was that challenge like in you know being uh, a captain where many of your first officers might be older than you and and looking at you going does this guy really know what he's doing yeah sure or passengers who look at you and think does this guy know what he's doing either yeah. uh you know it, and so i think first first and foremost uh, it, you got to come to work professional like you have to act the part and if you if you don't act the part if you're not filling the minimum requirement then you're already you're already behind the eight ball there. But secondly, I think it's an important distinction to remember that leaders, while they may be responsible for every decision, doesn't mean that they have to make every decision. Uh, And I had to go through that process of really trying to figure out, all right, if I know that I'm going to be sitting next to people with potentially substantially more experience, I mean, in one case, it was like 25 or 26 years older than me. um, And I had to develop that rapport and maintain all of those things. And I needed to engage those pilots and, and make them feel empowered and uh, so that they felt like they were respected and I wasn't trying to simply uh, micromanage, you know, for example, that, that as a, uh, I say that there's positional authority and r- relational authority that everybody knows that when I walk in and I'm a captain because I have four stripes on my shoulder or on, on my uh, epaulets, uh, I have, what we call the scrambled eggs on the on the brim of your cap, the star of the captain. Everybody knows that you're a captain. The, that so you can always fall back on positional authority. To me, it was about how do I how do I get the, the relational authority where this person feels like I'm that I'm respecting them and that they want to work together as a team just as much as uh, they you know they have to work with me. So. Right. Yeah. Because ultimately you are the boss when you're on, when you're flying the plane, when you walk on that plane uh, and maybe people have to listen to you, but you don't want them to be listening to you only for that fact. You want to build the relationship, build the trust. um, So they want to work with you and everybody works well together. And I would imagine that, you know, if you're working with someone who is much more senior than you, you don't try to act like you know more than them because they probably have more experience. They might know more than you and you want to respect that and utilize that, right? Not try to pretend like you somehow automatically know more because of your stripes. Absolutely. You know, and there are times when it's, it's like, I remember one situation where uh, years ago I was relatively new and one of the things we're constantly wondering is we're, we're, we're focused on our fuel situation. How much fuel do we have? Is it an adequate buffer at the destination? Because even though we plan for certain things, you might have stronger headwinds or they might not give you optimum altitudes, whatever. And all of that kind of chips away at your fuel reserve. So uh, everybody's kind of got their bottom line number of how much fuel on a particular plane they want to land with comfortably. And I remember at one point uh, a captain asking me that question and I, I gave him a number and then he said, well, I'm comfortable with a number that's lower than yours, so we'll, use, so we'll use that. And I thought, well, why'd you even ask me the question then? Like, if you were already going to go in and say, well, we're going to do X, then just do X. But when you ask me to, to do something and then you, you say, well, we're going to toss that aside, 
now you, uh, you've built a wall in the cockpit. And unfortunately, that, that, that would have repercussions down the road. So for me, as a captain, when I took over, you know, you, you always, you accumulate uh, styles that you liked and you want to emulate and styles that you, you didn't prefer. Uh, and you try to pick the best of both worlds there. Um, and so for me, I really tried to set a very open, uh, open tone. Admittedly, like as a new leader, and I'm sure that, that you can appreciate this, like as a consultant, when you'd go into places, there, there's, you have this feeling like, oh, I have to show them that I'm the leader. I have to put myself out there and make sure that they understand. Uh, but I feel like a lot of times that's our own insecurities coming out, not necessarily us being our best selves, as you like, uh, like to say. Yeah. So it, you have to be cognizant of the symbolic actions of, that you put forward as a leader. But uh, and then uh, I think you have to be willing to to set things up a certain way so that y you're able to ask questions. For example, and I know I'm I'm kind of going long here. Um, when we get into situation, let's say there's a thunderstorm starts to move out, and we start to look at our fuel numbers. As a, um, I like to ask the person, or well, you know, what's what's your we call it bingo fuel. So what's your bottom line number? And if that person comes in with a number that's much higher than I would expect, that's an opportunity for me to probe further because maybe that pilot doesn't, uh, maybe that pilot sees something, some threat that I haven't seen. And so I could say, well, tell me more about that. What, how did you come up with that number? If on the other hand, you know, uh, and that could lead to a discussion where maybe we lower that number, maybe we raise that number. Um, if on the other hand, I put my number out first, then that pilot is probably predisposed to already come into thinking, oh, well, my numbers should probably be close to this person's because he's, he's the captain. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of nuance that uh, sometimes you pick up along the way, whether that's in an airplane or in a business setting. But other times, I think you just have to get out there and you have to be in it and, and kind of see where things go and learn from some of your missteps uh, along the way as well. Yeah, and hopefully your missteps are not too big. Uh, so right. there's a couple of things I wanted to pull out of there. One was you talked about as a leader, uh, not you know feeling comfortable, not knowing, uh, having all the answers, or being the you know the expert, whatever it is. And I think that is a a big challenge for people in leadership positions, management positions at big companies everywhere that they feel like they need to be the expert. And if the person reporting to me. Uh, knows more than me, or I show some total weakness or say I don't know something, then that's, that's going to show weakness and I'm going to lose my job. Or, you know, it, then they are going to think they should be doing my job. And it's, it's really not that case at all. Like people want you to be transparent and authentic and vulnerable. I think it's so important in leadership today. And I wonder, is it that way? And can you be that way when you're flying a plane as well as a captain? Or do you have to be kind of stoically in charge all the time? Well, I mean, you could be stoically in charge, but I don't think that's a very effective form of leadership on the flight deck either. You know, years ago, it used to be command and control for sure at the airlines. And uh, that, that was necessary back in, let's say, you know, the early days of aviation when you were hiring people with very little experience at all. But the, the game has changed now. And over time, the United States in particular, Western Europe, they've really set the bar high for what we call crew resource management, uh, and it, which is all about the team and how, how we build that team and how you get good information. 
because there are uh, numerous examples, unfortunately, paved with blood, uh, where these ac accidents have happened that were completely preventable purely because walls were built up in, in the cockpit or they got focused on particular um, things, distractions that weren't necessary. Yeah. So the airlines, like I say, especially in the United States, but uh, uh, in, in, in a lot of Western type countries, have, uh, they've really focused on this crew resource management mindset that, yes, the captain uh, is king, if you will. If you know, they, they are the pilot in command, the final authority per the regulations. But other, the, the idea that captains shouldn't be questioned has kind of gone out, out the window because right. everybody should that's be able not to an effective up. way. Yeah, everybody should be able to speak up. And I've read about that in other, other books as well and how those, that became a, a problem in the past. But um, let me tell you this story, if you don't mind. Please. One of the biggest takeaways uh, in, in my first year that uh, was, a, you know, I have to brief the flight attendants as the captain. Every flight, we sit down first class, uh, generally, the flight tents are seated, and we'll go through the flight time and the weather and any types of uh, issues that we might be uh, planning to encounter along the way. Well, very seldom does the first officer come back for that briefing. He's, that, that pilot is busy with loading the flight computers, doing the walk around, a lot of tactically driven things. And one day, this uh, pilot came back, and um, when we got, I did the briefing, we get back to the cockpit, and I said, hey, thanks so much for coming up uh, for the, the pre-flight briefing. And he said, oh, I love the pre-flight briefing. And immediately I was like, what, what are you talking about? You love the pre-flight briefing. Yeah. Like, it's not that exciting. What's the deal? He said, well, actually, I like the first five seconds after the captain turns around and starts to walk back towards the cockpit. Because I like to look at the flight attendants and see if they roll their eyes, if they nod oh. their head or anything. And I don't even think that he realized the point that he made to me but it's that it's so hard when you're a leader and you're in a position of authority to get good feedback hmm. because people will tell you what they want you to hear. But uh, if you're not cognizant that that might not be the full story, then you might be missing out on some critical piece of information. It's to the point where, uh, you know, sometimes if there's a, let's say there's an interpersonal dynamic going on of a, of a couple flight attendants or a flight attendant passenger, and I'm not sure I'm getting the full story, I might set up a lavatory break and then ask the flight, the first officer to actually say, hey, what's the deal? What's going on back there? Because in many ways, that first officer, co-pilot, uh, might be able to get better info than I would, because maybe those people are afraid of, oh, I could turn this person in or you right. know, whatever. Captain's so, the boss. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. So uh, one thing I, I was thinking about in you know, reading your book and seeing your story is that you kind of knew that you wanted to be a pilot all the way going back to when you were six years old and your first flight looking out a window and, and fell in love and, and just knew you, you were on this path um, towards becoming a pilot through school and everything else that you did. Uh, I've always had no idea what I wanted to do when I grow up, and I still don't really know what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, but you have achieved it now, right? You not only pilot of a major airline, but you became a captain. And one of the things you talk about in the book, and I know your talks, is that you have to shift your mindset on achievement because it's not about that endpoint. Otherwise, you're kind of your life and career is almost over, right? You've achieved the big goal. What else is there to you know, this is more of a waypoint. This is really a journey. So how did you make that shift? How do you think about that, that journey now? 
Well, I mean, that's, that's why people are going to have to read the book, first of all, to, to figure that out. But, you know, uh, the, the truth is that to me, if all you're tr- looking for is the end point, if that attainment of that goal is, is what you're seeking, when you get there, it will feel like a sugar high. It will fade away quickly. And the next thing you know, you're going to need a bigger goal. You need to go faster. You need to go further, what have you. And at some point, you, you could keep climbing uh, to the highest pinnacle of your industry and you would still feel unfulfilled. And so that's really what the book is about is that journey and me learning through my, my colleagues who had had, you know, look, many of the people I flew with had had a much more rough and tumble career than I had. I hit the industry uh, at a very good timing all the way along. I made some good choices uh, and, and some of those proved to be fortuitous at times. But, but a lot of my career success came because of luck and timing in, in this industry. Um, you know, if I, had, if I had not done the Continental Internship, if I had done a, one at United or Delta or you, you name it, I, I wouldn't be sitting where I am today in the position that I am today. Well, a lot of the people that I was flying with had been furloughed after September 11th. Then they got recalled uh, at United. and 2008, the financial crisis hits, and they end up on the street again. Because again, it's seniority is all that matters. If your number's up, it's up. If it's not, you're not, it's not. But yet I'd fly with these guys and I'd realize they did the internships. They did the same things. They were trying just as hard. And yet their career went differently. And it really forced me to be introspective and look and say, what am I missing here? Because if I would look and think I would be miserable if I was in that situation, if I, if I hadn't you know, gotten along. And I started to realize all these unique experiences and things that these pilots had, whether, uh, whether it was intentional or not, you know, if they've kind of fell into it, flying at overseas carriers or cargo companies and things, some of them started their own businesses or took trips around the country um, during their furloughs, or they, they were in the military, you know, and it, uh, I, I think if we're so, we're so focused, and it's not a bad thing, on success, on achieving success and getting where we want to go. I mean, that's all I do for a living is get people A to B. So I I totally get that. But sometimes diversions come along and diversions aren't the worst thing ever. They may seem like it in the moment, but sometimes they end up being a true blessing too. What's the biggest diversion that you've taken in your career or, uh, or on a flight? (laughs) Uh, well, uh, you know, like, I, I, one of my first job after college, I'd say two, twofold. First is uh, my first job after college, um, I, I ended up at a place called Virginia Aviation in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, I knew nobody, absolutely nobody in Lynchburg, uh, but one of my college friends had, had happened to get there, and they were looking for another flight instructor, and so uh, it, it all kind of worked out. And, and it was a great place for me to go, but I never could have seen that. I met some great people. In fact, uh, one of my flight students, uh, who, who's one of my best friends to this day that I had at that school. And like, you think, well, where, where would I be without, you know, mm-hmm. having, uh, you know, his friendship? Um, but then the other thing is, you know, one of the reasons my wife and I moved to Chicago w- was because of just like you, I had my MBA and I was eager to put that to work because, again, I was a climber. So I, I did everything I could to get to the airlines as fast as I could. I got on the seniority list. And suddenly realized, hey, there's nothing else I can do at this point. I'm just waiting 
I'm going to fly it and do the best I can and learn and such. But no amount of hard work is going to get me to a captaincy faster. I'm just along for the ride. So I went and got my MBA, wanted to put that to use, started looking at taking a leave of absence and going into the management side of, uh, at the time, Continental Airlines. And right as I was graduating, that's when the merger was announced. And so my mentor, she was like, I don't think this is the right time for you to leave the flight deck. It's much better for you to probably stay where you are until the dust settles with all this. Well, headquarters for the combined company goes to Chicago and we go up to Chicago to uh, partially to try to get into one of those roles. And then I did happen to upgrade and I started to realize that I think I'm much happier as a, a line pilot than I am as a captain because now I can pursue some other endeavors. I don't have to uh, be in that corporate environment and never say never, but we moved back to Pennsylvania partially to be closer to family and partially because we said, I don't think that this is uh, the path that we're supposed to go on. I mean, I would have told you we're moving to Chicago so that I could try to get into management. And I, I think I went out there partially looking back now, connecting the dots and seeing the diversions. Yeah that it was almost like I went out there to learn that that really wasn't the path for me. And you, as you move along, I mean, we, we never can predict the future. You try different things and then you, you get some experience, you change your mind. You also move up, right? You move into the, the captain's chair and the stakes get higher. I know you talk about how this, as the stakes get higher, the standards get higher as well uh, in leadership. And I know this is definitely the case for airlines, but probably the case everywhere. Tell me more about that. I mean, so this is applicable. If you're, if you, let's say, let's say that you're working at a fast food restaurant and you're, uh, uh, you know, the frontline entry level type person. Like if you make a mistake on overcooking a hamburger or something, there's a small cost, right? Uh, but as you become like a manager or you become uh, the, the, the owner of that franchise, now your mistakes, well, that, you know, tactically different, the effects and the ramifications of that increase a lot. So we need our standards to follow that. As a first officer, I ultimately, as I made decisions, ultimately there was the captain sitting there that could step in if I, if I made a bad choice. And I would learn from that. I mean, these are great learning opportunities, growth opportunities. But as the captain, my job is to be the big picture guy, to be, to, to, to step back and say, where are we starting to drift off of, you know, our standard operating procedures or what have you? And how do we pull those back so that we make sure that our, our standards are here? Because I, I personally am not willing to take any chances, you know, with the safety of my flights. Is, does that, did, did I answer your question? Does it make any sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And speaking of safety, um, another thing you, you talk about in the book that I think is so important I interviewed recently a friend and mentor of mine, uh, Larry Yach, who's a, a former Navy SEAL officer, and he talks about the, one of the critical skills for a, a great manager is uh, managing risk. And you also talk about uh, the leader's responsibility, the most important and underrated skill of a leader is to manage that risk. 100%. And I don't think I fully grasp that because it's not one that people talk about a lot. I mean, it, it's not one that gets a ton of attention in business schools or, I mean, you're, you're, you're worried about risk, but it's not like someone's going to be like, man, he saved the day because they avoided placing the wrong purchase order for, you know, what X, Y, Z, whatever. Uh, 
Right. Um, but yet, like for me, I, the, one of my favorite stories in the book is about uh, a really gusty landing in Chicago where we're right up to the limits of what the 737 is designed to handle or has been demonstrated to handle as far as uh, crosswinds. And so, you know, we're bebopping down the, the, the glide path closer and closer to the runway. And uh, that line, there, there's a line between pushing too far and pushing enough. And as a professional, I'm supposed to get people from A to B. But I have to be leaving myself and out. I have to be thinking about what is coming down the pike. And crossing that line in my business can be catastrophic. And yet it's a, it's a dynamic environment, just as it is for most businesses, that uh, the conditions are constantly changing. Very few things are static. Uh, and so for me, I, I landed that plane out that day. Spoiler alert, we made it. And uh, I said, it started to think about like a quarterback. And I said, who's the better quarterback? The one that launches the Hail Mary and has it pulled in to win the game? Or the, the quarterback that throws the ball away? And his team gets to play another down. Yeah. I mean, I, if you're talking about flying planes, I want the quarterback that's going to throw the <laughs> ball away and, and play the next down. I mean, you want to do the safest thing. And that's why you and I had coffee recently when you were in town. And, and I told you what I've told other people is that I, you know, I fly a lot. And sometimes you hear the, you know, the captain come on and say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to be a little bit delayed because we ran into this mechanical problem or something's got to be fixed or the tire's flat or whatever, all kinds of silliness that, you know, stuff that comes up. And then I'll see people getting angry because they're going to be late. And my reaction, though, is always, dude, calm down. Like, let them fix whatever they need to fix because, I, yeah, I want to get there too. But I want safety is the number one most important objective to me. Don't take a risk just to get us there an hour faster. It's true. But as one of my friends told me when he was reading an early uh, draft of the manuscript, he said, delays may be part of your business, but they're never part of our plans. And I think that that, that is really, really good. You know, because I try to remind myself that on any given flight, I probably have somebody that's going to an important business meeting, maybe a wedding or a funeral or uh, a reunion of, of, of whatever it is, they want to get there. They may not be regular travelers, so their stress levels are already high. And we can't cut corners, uh, obviously. That safety is, that's the baseline. Like right. nobody flies United over Delta because we are safer. They expect everybody is safe all the time. That is, that's table stakes. Right. Uh, then from there, it, it, it could be other other things. And as soon as that reputation goes away, that becomes really tarnishing to a to a company's brand, uh, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree. I remember one time a, a, a regional airline that I worked for, and it was thunderstorming like crazy, and this raining like cats and dogs, you know. And uh, this passenger is like, "Come on, we gotta go!" And I, I gotta like get there. And I was like, "Man." If the plane had keys, I would toss you the keys. But, uh, I'm going to be right here. So if you need me, I'll be right here. I'm just going to be sitting here waiting for this storm to pass. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, speaking of that, um, I want to ask you some, some more practical or tactical questions. Uh, and these, many of which come from our listeners, followers. I posted on Facebook earlier today and got some questions that came in. Um, one of them is a question where some people might not want to hear the answer to this. I don't know. Um, but Talking about turbulence, 
Turbulence is something I've experienced many times flying, you know, as a passenger. Is that something that's just annoying or is that legitimately dangerous that you're trying to avoid? Could it have, you know, could bad things happen? Uh, I'm going to say that, you know, most of the time, the, the vast percentage of the time, turbulence is purely just a nuisance. Okay. Um, there are certain types of turbulence that would be really bad, uh, but we've gotten very good and the technology has gotten really good at being able to avoid those types of uh, things. Like for, for the example, they would, uh, one type is called uh, microbursts, which were uh, when thunderstorms are dying out, the, this huge gust comes down uh, out of the bottom of the cloud and uh, can really wreak havoc, especially if you're flying through an area of what we would call wind shear. If you picture you're flying into a headwind and it dies away to a tailwind, it'd get bumpy and then you'd lose a lot of airspeed. But we have technology now on board that detects all of that, so you don't fly through that. And it, um, the, the types of turbulence that you're more likely to encounter uh, are, are, are purely ripples. Uh, I like to describe them as the difference between being on a boat and being in a submarine. If you're on a boat, you're on a boundary layer, right? There's the water and then there's the air. And so as the wind moves across the water, it creates the ripples and the, 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 the boat on this is kind of goes, goes up, up and down. down. Yeah. If that boat can just get down just a little bit lower, it, it would be purely within the water hmm. and suddenly you're not on the boundary layer and you don't get those bumps. So for us, the same thing is true at altitude. You're in, uh, you, when you get on these edges of ripples of air, or, or the uh, boundary layers between two rivers of air. And so we, we try to go up a thousand feet or down a thousand feet to get out uh, of that little boundary layer. And a lot of times that works. Uh, obviously, you know, weather and things like that gets uncomfortable. But I almost always will make the PA announcement and say this really cheesy, you know, dad joke kind of thing where it's like it might put a few white caps in your coffee or make that Sudoku puzzle a little more challenging. But <laughs> Uh, that's all it is. It's just a nuisance and yeah. we'll be through it in a minute. How do you think about the trust and responsibility that people put in your hands when they get on board? I know we've talked about this a little bit already, but do you, you know, do you think about that when you get on the plane? I think about it when I'm, when I'm either walking up to a gate um, or when I uh, am standing at the, at the doorway as people are getting off the plane. And when I see the people and I, I see it's, you know, it's college students and, parents with kids in tow and uh, uh, business people who, you know, they're not concerned about me, but I look at them and I think it is really an awful lot of responsibility. The magic is we close the cockpit door and I forget all about it because it's just me and my flying partner. We're up there going for a little flight and uh, you, whether it's uh, you know, in my case, the biggest airplane I've flown is a 767-400, which is about 450,000 pounds, um, or the 737 or even smaller airplanes. Once you close that cockpit door, it's just the two of us. And I, I joked about it, but it's the truth. If I, if I make it to my destination safely, very good chance that you are too. And sometimes I'll even joke with people, you know, that say like, if I don't get there, my wife's going to be mad because we got dinner plans or whatever. Yeah. So they, that just to try to be relatable and so yeah. that they know that, Hey, I might have this fancy uniform on, but, uh, at the end of the day, it's, um, I'll, I'll try to get there just like you. Exactly. Right? Uh, okay. So you're up in the cockpit with your flying partner. You shut that door. It's just the two of you flying the plane. You don't think about anything else. You got some long flight time and I imagine not a whole lot that you have to do during most of that time. Do pilots get really bored a lot? 
Um, so I'm going to address the first part first. There, there's a difference between being physically active and being mentally active, as I'm mm. sure that, that, that you're, you can appreciate. Yeah. You know, now, you know, we've got our iPads, uh, which is a wonderful technology for us. It's been a huge improvement. And with internet on board, you know, we can look at the same weather charts and things that we look at on the ground where we used to not be able to. So we're constantly reevaluating. Uh, you know, we'll break a, an entire segment of flight into lots of little segments. We call them waypoints. And we'll be evaluating, are we on time where we should, where the flight plan was? Or is our fuel okay? How's the weather look down the way? Or should we be managing a reroute sooner than later? You know, all of these types of things. So I think it is a misconception that during during the flight that we are not doing You're a lot. You're not doing anything, right. We, we may not be physically doing a lot, but there's a lot of times there is there is a lot of mental thought goes into it. Now, that said, we do chit-chat uh, an awful lot. And sometimes, you know, my teams uh, at work change all the time. Uh, with pilots, uh, we typically get paired together for between one and four days. Flight attendants, they swap out almost every single leg uh, that we fly, which adds some complexity for building cohesion as a team. And it also kind of leads to like in the book, I mentioned it as uh, Ed, 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 stealing a line from Edward Norton's character in Fight Club with uh, single-serving friends, that you get to know these people on a somewhat you know superficial uh, level. That it's the same twenty questions. You know, you almost feel like you should show up and say, uh, say, hey, my name's Corey. I live in Pennsylvania. I have a wife, a daughter. I got a, a dog. I like to golf uh, and you know, run marathons. Okay, what next? What, what else can we talk about? Yeah. Because uh, you don't get, you don't often, I mean, just in Newark, for example, uh, on the 737 fleet alone, we've got 400, more than 400 captains and 400 first officers just in that base. Wow. So the chances that I'm going to get paired with another pilot for more than one or two trips is very, very unlikely. In fact, in my entire career, I could probably count on like, maybe 20, 25 pilots that I've flown with more than once and easily one hand the number of pilots that I've flown with more than twice. Wow. So you really get a chance to get to know a lot of different people, which is, uh, which is great for networking across the, across the company. It is interesting because everybody, you know, because we have, I don't take my work home with me. Like that's the best, probably one of the best elements is I, I obviously there's some training and things that goes on uh, year to year, but generally speaking, when I come home, I'm done. Uh, and so people, a lot of people get end up with side businesses and it's always interesting to hear kind of what endeavors they, they get into and hobbies and stuff like that. Speaking of that, you, you probably get to know a lot of different pilots and captains. Um, one person asked, um, how many, is it, is it common that there are a lot of pilots do you think that are completely unfulfilled and wishing they were in a different career, but they feel kind of stuck because let's face it, you invest all this time and experience, you've got a pension and a plan and all this stuff, and you don't feel like you can go do something else. Yeah. Or, or you know, a friend, a non-airline friend asked me, you know, do you think you'd ever apply to one of the other carriers? And I'm like, no, definitely not because my seniority doesn't transfer. Mm. So while I have good seniority uh, with United, if I went to any other carrier, I'd start at the very bottom of the seniority list. Right. So there is that element of because everything is dictated by uh, by the seniority list that 
there is uh, some monotony to some of it, but we fly to so many different places. We fly to, you know, so many different types of fleets, different bases, especially now with the combined carrier, there's a little niche for almost, almost everybody. You know, does, are there people that I saw, I think I did see your reply on, on that one about like it, it, almost any industry has that, uh, those, those types of people. Sure they do. But I would say even those people um, that I, I maybe have flown with once or twice, uh, they still show up to work and on its worst day, there's, you get to see some amazing sunrise or, um, you know, visit some new city and there's always, there's some positive element every time you go to work, no doubt about it. Yeah. And they still, I assume and hope they still show up taking their job very seriously. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And if they not. don't, they're not going to make it. They're not going to get through training and such. Yeah. So people are keeping an eye on those things and saying, Hey, you're not, that's, that's good to hear. Uh, what along those lines, what are the most and least fulfilling parts of your job? Um, most and least fulfilling. Well, uh, I, I mean, some, like I say, some of the landscapes and things that we get to see are absolutely my favorite part. Uh, mountain flying in particular, you know, the sunrises and sunsets, those dawn and dusk periods of the day, That's which true. even, you know, um, or but the, the opposite is still true. Was, you know, flying oceanic stuff uh, years ago, you get to see some spectacular uh, stars when you get out, we, we, we get out over the water and we'll turn all the cockpit lights as dim as they go. And you kind of cup your hands and put them up to the window mm. and just kind of stare out at these, these stars and they just go all the way down to the horizon. It's like, when do you get to see that? Or, you know, I've seen the Northern lights up in Alaska a number of times and uh, those types of things to me that, that just absolutely never gets old. The feeling uh, the push on the back, uh, on your, on the small of your back, when you, uh, shove the throttles forward on takeoff, like the excitement that comes with this is an adventure we're about to begin that, that always gets me. Um, I am not a fan of flying in the middle of the night. That is, that is my, by far, you know, the, my least favorite part. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, as a younger person, I didn't care where I went, uh, cause I had no connections. And I got married, I wanted to be home a little more. When I had married and had a kid, uh, then I really wanted to be home. And, you know, FaceTime is great, and I'm so thankful for that type of technology that didn't exist even just a few years ago. Uh, but it's still not the same. So, you know, you hear your, I know our uh, kids are similar age, and, uh, you know, when you'll hear, uh, when you're sitting in a hotel room somewhere and your daughter says, says, you know, when are you coming home, daddy? You know, it kind of tugs at your heartstrings for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the challenge. I love the uh, the landscape answer. I love looking out of that stuff on the window. Obviously, I can't see nearly as much, uh, you know, as what you're seeing. And for some reason, I always feel like I'm in the wrong seat. You know, whenever I'm on the left side and I'm flying across the country, <laughs> the Grand Canyon is always on the right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I digress. Um, Okay, the last question I was going to ask uh, came from my friend Garrett, which was, uh, and this is a completely unanswerable, unknowable question, but how long do you think before jets are completely automated and you're out of a job? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because that is a, a topic that's, that's front and center right now. There's a lot of people want to do studies on uh, even single pilot. You know, we'll, we'll definitely move to single pilot before we move to zero pilots. Yeah. Um, and I think that my personal opinion is that the cargo industry is probably more 
likely to see that first right. before uh, we see it for us. But I don't know because, you know, for example, a friend of mine, uh, he had a situation a, a while ago where they uh, ended up getting into some hail and uh, the, the plane uh, took a fair amount of uh, damage on the nose uh, and because of the hail and the nose cone collapsed inward and it changed the airflow all around um, around uh, the sensors that detect airspeed, altitude, all of these things. And what you don't realize is how interwoven some of those sensors are into other elements that we take for granted. Because when I read about I, this incident, it hit the news and I had seen it. I'm like, well, it probably looks worse than it, it was because you the guys probably just came over. Or we can, uh, most of these airliners today can auto land um, if necessary. All right, so they probably set it up for the auto landing and called it a day. And then I found out, you know, later after the fact that, well, that wasn't an option because the auto landing sensory stuff wasn't working in the computers because of this disrupted airflow. And I do wonder, you know, at some point there, there's a person needs to be there. In my opinion, to, it's, you talk to military guys and these drones and things, they'll go, you know, basically no calm for uh, long stretches at a time, sometimes 10, 20 minutes. So will the technology probably get there one day? Sure. Um, I, I'm cautiously optimistic that it won't be in my career time frame, but uh, I guess only one way to find out. Yeah. All right. Well, that was very serious. We'll end on a more fun note um, based on a question I just came, just came in from my friend Vanessa, which is, I was thinking about earlier. Um, what's one of the craziest or funniest things that you've encountered in you know flying ar around and specifically have you been on a crew that has uh interrupted a mile high encounter <laughs> uh you'd have to ask the flight attendants for the second one i'm probably right. clueless on on some of that i know if maybe you heard uh, you know i figured there'd be some chatter about that if uh, if somebody came across it uh on the on the funniest things you know uh, I'm trying to think, you know, most of my stuff has been pretty mundane when it, yeah. it when it, it comes to that. I, you're we do get, you're still dealing cars. with humanity and, and, yeah. and crazy, angry people boarding planes. Yeah. There's <laughs> the, the passengers uh, can be interesting at, at, at times. Um, I'd say some of the most fun I've had have been, uh, has been some of the sports charters that we we get to do uh, from time to time. And there, there was one, uh, charter that I did where we had a baseball team, a major league team that had won a particularly large game uh, in the regular season. And uh, it was funny to me because until I uh, talked to the flight attendants, I didn't realize that there was, there was quite the celebration going on in the, in the back of the plane. And because uh, up front, you know, we were flying, it's, they finished their game at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So it's yeah. midnight before we even took off. It's right. late. It's quiet up in the cockpit and apparently there's this like uh not raucous uh yeah but there's a party going on in the back there's a good they're having a good time in the back and it's like that's kind of funny but that's cool all right Corey, we gotta wrap things up uh for anybody listening that wants to check out the book three feet to the left or get in contact with you find out more about what you do uh, where's the best place for them to go well the book's available on amazon and uh, if they do pick it up, I'd greatly appreciate it if, uh, if they like the book to leave a review. Although my bad joke is that if you don't like the book, don't leave a review. Um, <laughs> and 
as far as connecting with me, I'm at Corey Frank. That's K-O-R-R-Y-F-R-A-N-K-E uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all of those uh, kind of formats. So, uh, But I, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much um, for inviting me on the show. And, and just so that all the listeners know and probably to make the, the uh, lawyers happy at United, you know, they, I am here just on my own that these are my thoughts and mine alone. And in no way do they represent the opinions of, of United Airlines. Awesome. Yeah. Good to get that out there. <laughs> to have you on Corey and great to have a connection in the cockpit. Uh, of course, we're connected on social media. I love following you there and, and keeping in touch. And uh, even though I mostly fly Southwest these days, I hope I end up on one of your flights soon. Yeah. Maybe once this launches, uh, the uh, if, if people have other questions, fire them away on Twitter. And uh, maybe we can get some back and forths going, uh, get some of the other questions answered for you. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks a lot, Corey. Take care. Thanks, Andy.